1: We call it Epcot, will be our experimental prototype city of tomorrow. Welcome
3: to another episode of the Retro Disney World Podcast, taking you back to the
0: vacation kingdom of the world, the way it was and the way it is in your memories. All right, welcome to another episode of the Retro Disney World podcast, the official podcast of the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society. I'm your host, Todd McCartney, and tonight is episode 49, Horizons, the Prologue, where we'll be jumping into all of the history, design elements, and everything behind the attraction Horizons at Epcot Center. But before we get to that, we've got a lot to do and also some introductions to the team uh, coming into to us from Ohio tonight, Mr. JT Couser. How are you doing tonight, JT? I'm doing good. How are you, Todd? Pretty good. The maple syrup season's done here oh yeah
2: it's people are cutting their grass and i feel like it's too soon i'm, just, <laughs> I'm like not there yet not I'm there yet all right
0: well i'll send you some syrup to extend the the, the winter feel of the season yeah outside. okay and also coming into from tampa florida as always mr how bowers how are you doing tonight how aloha i'm doing just fine nice anything exciting going on down your way the, the no. tampa bay lightning uh in the hockey as you call it is are gone yep they're done they- they're done. Toast. They're done. Who, we who were beat gonna, them?
4: It's beach weather, so the Blue Jackets. I thought yeah, the so. Columbus Blue Jackets, who I'd never heard of before in my entire life, because I'm, i still, <laughs> I'm still. When I followed hockey, it was the 1970s, so as far as I know, Bobby Orr is still, like, playing for Boston.
0: They wear helmets now, How?
4: And yeah. I, I know, what a surprise. And, and, and Hal, like, Mick,
0: Mickey Mantle is no longer playing yeah, for the Yankees.
4: There's dude. some <laughs> new guy on the LA team named Wayne Gretzky who I think has a lot of promise, so we'll see what happens <laughs> They, with they him. pulled
2: off this monster trade. <laughs>
4: <laughs> but no, I actually do attend a few games here uh, of the Lightning. And I and I like them. At, yeah, I don't know. That was well, a weird we'll one. We'll all have
0: remember. to go next time we're in town. Ta- we're all not in town sh- together. We'll not go to sure a what
4: happened game. with that one, but, you know. Yeah. Whatever. So well. congratulations to the Blue Jackets and, yep. and all their fans. They're, they're headed off to the next the next round, I suppose. That's right. That's right.
0: And another hockey fan hailing from the city of brotherly love, Mr. Brian P. Miles, or your team finished up as well. Greetings and salutations from... F-
3: from Philadelphia, where the Flyers did not make the playoffs, and neither did the Lehigh Valley uh, Phantoms, their farm team, where I have season tickets. So,
0: Well, my my alma mater, UMass uh, Hockey, lost in the national championship. They didn't go anywhere, and then the Bruins are still hanging on, but I don't know if they're going
3: to Well, this, it, this so. week the Flyers made news because yesterday they hired uh, the former head coach of the New York Rangers, where our special guest tonight oh. uh, is from. And uh, Alain Vigneault is our new head coach, so Uh, I'm sure that will put us right into the Stanley Cup finals next year.
0: There you go. And as Brian hinted, we do have a special guest sitting in with us tonight from New York City, the Big Apple, Ted Linhart. Uh, Welcome to the show, Ted. How are you doing tonight? Very good, thank you. Excellent. So Ted is one of our high-level, gold-level donors, if you will. He runs DisneyDocs.net. He's got a wealth of information on Horizons, so he is sitting in and will be helping participate in getting the show off the ground tonight. So I'm glad that you could join us. Uh, anything you'd like to say to everybody out there? Any any hockey excitement you have going on in your city?
5: I have zero <laughs> sports interest, so okay. I cannot contribute that at all. But I will say I am thrilled and honored to be with you. I I only could dream that this happening 5 years ago when I first started listening which proves if we can dream it we can do <laughs> there it. There you oh. go.
4: Nicely done.
3: I have to, I have to say I'm particularly happy Ted's with us because Ted uh, offers commentary on his Twitter feed from time to time on television shows. And he was the other person out there who loved HBO's Crashing. Oh, yes. And
5: commented on it when it was canceled. Oh, that's so. right. I think you liked my tweet when I did that, maybe. I I absolutely did. I loved that show and was very disappointed that it ended. And it's amazing how it changed in over just three seasons from a, mm-hmm. an original premise to really an amazing character study. I was so disappointed. And with that, folks,
0: that is our sports and entertainment news for this month. Tune in next year. jump into corrections and comments from last month we had a couple people write in regarding last month's episode and guys that was a great one a timekeeper and and then also our interview with uh, jeff Blythe. i think that really really went well um so lucy writes in and she says uh, hi great podcast as usual an observation i think that that very brief scene where the timekeeper talks about the english countryside and talking to a man trevor and she believes it came from poncelite aqueduct which you can look up uh, on the web and this would explain why he mentions Trevor, because the town right there is Trevor, but it's in Wales. And, and uh, so she thought maybe that would become from, where it came from. So I went right to the source. Uh, source. I, I gave Jeff a call and uh, to talked to him, and then he wrote me an email back. And he says, uh, I apologize, I do have to disappoint your listener, uh, but the location of the inter- English country shot is... He says, well, I have no idea. I can say it's not anywhere near the town of Trevor or that aqueduct. Uh, They were flying around with Mark Wolf. Um, He's a helicopter pilot in the UK who does all the aerial work for some big films. And they found the location by accident, called in her producers who were elsewhere on the ground. And while they were circling, they got permission from the landowners to shoot a quick shot. They didn't even know if it was going to be in the film uh and that's what we call a grab shot but in this case we had to jump through hoops so to speak to make everything legit for disney because the property was not part of a national trust amazing backstory that goes with this just i mean how, how long is that on the screen guys like f- five seconds right um so he says where Trevor comes from is the fertile mind of Robin Williams uh, he had says he had insisted we wire him up with a microphone so we could get his spontaneous reactions as he saw the cut film for the first time and he ad-libbed the line just throwing in Trevor as a, a quintessential quintessential british name so pretty pretty funny there so there's your answer lucy that's where it was actually shot in an unknown town somewhere but it was definitely wasn't trevor or the aqueduct so so if anybody knows the real location or wants to sit on google maps for a while let us know Uh, We also had another one write in, um, and I apologize, I missed the name on this, but he wrote in and and said, I have heard that the timekeeper date display for the present day was stopped at the year 2000 due to the World Trade Center towers uh, being visible when Nine-Eye takes Jules Verne to New York City. Can you confirm this? Uh, It actually did not stay at 2000. Uh, um, There is actual video footage of it uh, at 2003 and beyond until when it closed in 2004. So they did adjust it. They did not... uh, Lock it for, in time. For
3: our for our younger listeners, that was called the Y two K bug. That's right. <laughs> and and it was and it and it was all the
0: rage back in the late nineties. That's right. That's right. It was a big deal. It was. It was. So, uh, and the last one comes into us from John Kitty, and this has to do with the Epcot Center name, you know, being an experimental prototype community of tomorrow center. So I think how you've got some clarification on this one you, you're going to go through.
4: Yes. Yeah, so he said, uh, he said, guys, love the podcast. Keep the good work. He wanted to put in his two cents. Brian and I had a conversation, I think, in our last episode, and I think we were just kind of like, yeah, the center didn't mean anything. And he said, well, Danny Kay explains in great detail that the entire property is considered Epcot, you know, is considered Epcot because they have, you know, all these technologies. And then then that being the center or the middle of it all was Epcot Center. And then that sort of reminded me that I had heard that story before. And it's really just a lot of PR flack or not flack, but just it's just PR Uh, when I went back into some of the other documents to do the research, uh, on this particular episode, what we discovered was that, um, originally when Epcot was going to be built, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about this, uh, as we get into horizons, um, there was a thing called the Epcot theme center that would have been the first place that you visited. So mm. as Epcot progressed and it you know, sort of went through its different versions from 1974 to like 1976 and then 1979, um, that name Epcot Theme Center stayed and stayed and stayed until finally that there was that sort of combination of Future World and World Showcase. And at that point, they dropped the word theme out of it and just left it as Epcot Center. Um, originally... It was going to be a a center. Um, The idea is that there would be sort of like when when the idea was originated in 76, there was going to be an institute that was part of it. So you would have gone there to get your education. There would have been satellite facilities that could have had things like, you know, power plants or water reclamation plants or manufacturing facilities or what have you, whatever the sponsors wanted to put in. And then the center (laughs) would have been... uh, where you would have gone to get the sort of like a taste of all of these things before you went off and looked at the individual facilities. So that's where the concept of the center came from. And, and Ted is waving, showing me his, you know, he, he actually has the 1976 document that this all comes from, uh, where he's explaining, uh, where it kind of explains this entire thing, uh, as they went out to try to get sponsors and the whatnot. So, uh, thanks to him for, for having that document handy for, for us to like sort of verify that against
5: also can i bring up one topic on this sure doesn't walt in the in the movie where he unveils epcot with the big giant map doesn't he say um experimental prototype city of tomorrow he does one time (laughs) yeah once that's it and then it was community after that yeah
4: he actually uses it interchange he says i think community twice and then says city one time and then
0: goes back to community because you're in your intro to the show, it's city. Yeah, because that's cut directly yep. from uh, that. That part is cut directly from the Epcot film.
3: Actually, we had Walt record <laughs> it for us. Yeah, he knew years
0: ago that this was going to happen. So, yeah, uh, how I it, it? You know, it's probably good that the marketing team just didn't call it like Epcot Middle. Right? Yeah, it just doesn't doesn't have the same ring, but that might be a nice shirt. You know, where, where are you staying? Where are you going? I'm, we're going to Epcot Middle.
4: So. Yeah, but and actually that's interesting because I, I think maybe the reason we got the on this is because for a very brief time before it became Epcot '94, it just became like they dropped Center and it just became Epcot shortly.
0: Right, and then we're not building the rest, so it's no and longer they the like center.
4: Tagged on the '94 <laughs> and the '95, and then it went back to Epcot. It's,
3: then I had that whole problem at the end of the 90s where, like, nobody knows what this is called. Let's put a giant <laughs> wand with its name up there. That no, was Just 2000 first, wasn't it? Didn't the wand first, say
2: 2000? It, yeah. it was. And then it changed it to Epcot. They yeah. re- rebranded again.
0: So, so since it's no longer, maybe we now need to find the exact dead center of Epcot and then stand there, and that would be Epcot Center. <laughs> right. <laughs> It's actually we'll, in a sinkhole. We'll,
3: we'll, we'll, we'll get a marker put down. It'll become an Instagram photo yeah, spot. There we go. go. That would be
0: perfect. I'm in Epcot Center. I like that Mission for October. That's right. We've got the, we'll have got. we work on this one. We'll work on it. All right. Well, that uh, does it for comments and corrections. I'm going to pass it out to JT, who's been lugging that giant mailbag around. It's w- getting warmer, but uh, it's getting heavier and heavier by the month. So what do we got coming in this month, JT? It is, it is much easier without... Wait, wait, wait. I can't I can't see you behind
3: all those letters. <laughs> could you? Could you? Could you? I
2: thought I had a camera problem there. Yeah, I had to dig my way out here. Um, all right, so we've got a few here. First one is from Rick Webster, a, a regular. Uh, I feel like we've gotten some other letters from him before. He says, hey, guys, absolutely love the Timekeeper episode. He said, well, I love all the episodes. Thank you, Rick. And it inspired me to watch Timekeeper on YouTube, which I did the same thing, Rick. My wife and I were at the grand opening of Euro Disney in 92, and we absolutely loved it there, and were thrilled when we were able to see it in Walt Disney World one time as well. The stories and background about the making Timekeeper were amazing and fascinating. He said, as he was re-watching it, he noticed something in the helicopter sequence, and it made him curious as to whether it was coincidence or a nod to another Tomorrowland attraction. When Jules Verne is in the helicopter stepping out, Timekeeper says to him, if you had wings, I'd let you go. He said, "What do you think, guys? Coincidence or a nod? I don't know. What's your take?"
0: Well, you know, this is pre-giving nods, like you know, you have the little sculpt of uh, of twenty k and Ariel's grotto now, or whatever Ariel's, right? Mm-hmm. And and uh, the you know some of the leftover stuff and other rides, or the World of Star Tours, motor, oh, Star, yeah, different things like that. So. I, you know, if it is, it might be one of the earliest nods to previous attractions. But it, then again, it didn't replace that attraction either. I, I, hard to say, but you know, I, I mean, don't know. Jeff Jeff
4: wrote the script, right? So I mean, he was familiar with those attractions. He, in fact, he probably either mm. he or someone in his group actually probably shot some of the aerial stuff, like when you were in the mirror room and over the yeah. mountain. So you know, he that could have been. I think he was familiar enough with it, or he could have wrote that in.
0: Well, we got his email and phone. I think we might.
2: We should. <laughs> or maybe Robin
4: Williams ad-libbed it because he was a big fan of a few headwings. Yeah,
0: you never know. <laughs> a Very good observation.
2: Yes, thank you, Rick. All right, next up, uh, we're going to jump away from Timekeeper just for a second, and we're going to hear from Maverick. Not Top Gun Maverick, but Maverick Martin. He says uh, he's been a fan of the podcast for years. He's a former cast member. He worked in the ticket department from 1976 to 1980, and at the time, tickets was the second largest department, only operations was larger. One of his jobs was cashier in the Penny Arcade around 1978. He says it was so loud in there, he requested earplugs, but was denied <laughs> oh, because no. they would detract from the theme. He hit his supervisors, so that this continues on. The supervisors did a, uh, a test of the uh, noise with a meter, a VU meter, and the results came back that the noise was acceptable over an eight-hour shift. Whatever standard that was in 1978, I'm sure it's different than today, but uh, yeah, it, it was good to go.
0: What was the theming, like, you know, an an old woolen mill with machines pumping away? (laughs) Is that the theme that we're going for? could have shoved cotton in his ear and it might have matched
2: the theme. Uh, I found that hard to believe and would trade his shift out of the Penny Arcade whenever he drew the assignment. He says, I now reside in Wisconsin and I am deaf. No, I'm just joking. He does say, (laughs) I now reside in Wisconsin. I'm very interested in finding the band organ that once resided in the Penny Arcade. He must want to relive these memories of uh he tries to find it based on our information on our podcast but came up with zero so if we have any information uh on his location he'd love to go and interview the owner provide video of the organ playing for us guys so so the information i have is that it is owned by a gentleman named bob
4: gilson he lives in middleton wisconsin what same state as maverick I i think i read something somewhere that he occasionally opens up his collection
2: all right, thanks, Hal. So that is uh, Maverick. Uh, Maverick, let us know if you get any info on that uh, the band organ. We would love to hear more about that for sure. Uh, finally, uh, I have an email here from it's either Jose or jo- Jose. I can't say J O S U uh, E Rodriguez. He says, uh, hello all, I was just listening to the Timekeeper episode and found it fascinating that Renault made a Rhinostella 2328 concept in 1992, which we discussed that was the, uh, the flying machine that they were flying on at the end of the show. Uh, as a gearhead, the name immediately clicked. It's because Renault had actually produced a Ryan Estella in 1929. You are right, sir. Uh, it was produced for only a few years, but stood as their top of the line luxury car that would compete with other luxury brands like Rolls Royce, Packard, etc. Uh, I guess you can assume that the 2328 concept is a luxury car pays homage to, and uh, basically, yeah, that's that's totally confirmed. We kind of didn't hit on that. I did notice that, and uh, definitely that name was a, a, a throwback to the old car of old. So thank you, Mr. Rodriguez. We appreciate that. So if you have any questions, comments, concerns, would like to possibly get on the show, podcast at retrowdw.com. Send us your notes, questions, emails, anything, and we will uh, read it on the show possibly.
0: Alright, thanks a lot JT. Well, it's time for this month's audio rewind and uh, how you submit you've been submitting these uh, often to me which I like uh, because I've you've got a large array a large library of sound effects to go through and this one really struck a chord all of a sudden we had about 200 some responses this month and Uh, most of them were correct. Well, it was either that hour or the fact that we're giving away small T-shirts, remember? <laughs> oh, that's right, the multi-T-shirt giveaway. <laughs> exactly. So, the, uh, there, and there's going to be three winners tonight, too. So let's take a listen to last month's Audio Rewind. All right, if you guessed the Star Tours chime, you were correct. And we do have those three winners. And uh, we have Kelly Daly, Trenton Gladding, and Nathan Hartman. So congratulations to all three of you. Uh, this was pretty fun. A lot of people wrote in the same thing, and, and Nathan had it in his. He says, "It's occasionally my text notification sound. You almost made me reach for my phone." <laughs> that's so a good it's one. Pretty when he fun. said that, that was,
2: yeah, that's awesome. I, yeah, I a lot of people
4: said that. I use that for my text messages too. So. There,
0: there we go. Look at look at that. So, uh, so congratulations to all three of you. You'll be each receiving a poster and uh, each receiving uh, some of our extra. Uh, not extra small are are overruns of small T-shirts that we have left that we'll get out to you. Um, so hopefully you've got somebody in your family or possibly even you will fit into the small shirt. So we'll get that out. The 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 ringer
3: on my phone for 18 years has been the opening song to Pac-Man. Mm. So the only time I can ever confuse it is if I'm near an arcade <laughs> <laughs> and I start like, is it my phone ringing? Is that... <laughs>
0: That would be great to bring you in there. You just never just just leave your phone home that day, Brian. Just leave it home. All right. So we need a prize for this month, and how this is actually coming from the collection that you sent to me. So you, oh fantastic! Why don't you tell fantastic. listeners what you sent and what we have been working on here for the for the oh past my month or so? <clears> it well. weighed a ton. Starting sometime
4: around 1990 uh, something. Yeah, I,
1: st- I think that's about right.
4: Yeah, I think that's right. I started videotaping many many things on television. Uh, sometimes it would be the uh, sometimes it would be the in in the resort television uh, if you stayed at Walt Disney World. Uh, sometimes it would be we'd get the we didn't ever pay to have the Disney Channel. So when the Disney Channel came on free, if anybody remember that era? It's like you actually oh, had yeah. to pay for the Disney Channel when it would come on free i would just binge tape as many things as possible
2: <laughs> so all your footage has the call this number to
0: sign no
1: up.
2: it
0: surprisingly it didn't interesting yeah. i yeah, have okay. a lot of
2: movies like that that have the
4: sign
0: up number the interruption yeah
4: yeah and then uh so i would tape you know any special that that came on that had to do with walt disney world and, and i would also tape specials that came on you know nbc or the affiliates so like the the christmas parades and the easter parades and those things so i took uh the first batch of VHS tapes that I had and sent them to Todd to start doing digital conversions on them and uh let me tell you, he has done an amazing job with the capture and the conversion, the cleanup. It has blown my mind how how good it all looks. Um, but I also sent a couple of of commercial mm-hmm. uh, tapes in there too, things that I had purchased and I do not need any more because I don't have a v I don't have a VHS player anymore. That's I, right. I gave it away. So uh, so what of the pile? I know there's some cherry ones in there from the parks. So uh, what are we doing this time?
0: Well, you know, I wasn't going to give away any of the stuff you recorded because I don't know if uh, a musical Christmas as Walt Disney World and Brenda Starr and the Chris- Christmas 94 parade all packed onto one tape would be. That's not what I'm sending. But I never uh, even watched
5: that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I kind of got the hint that a lot of this you didn't watch so, out. That's a terrible movie anyway. <laughs>
0: So, how I, I we did have multiple copies. You sent me two copies of A Day at the Magic Kingdom, the original souvenir video that you would purchase, and there were two copies. There was a difference. Do you remember yes. what the difference
4: was? Well, uh, I, one was... I, I know they were from two different dates, but I, I don't Correct. remember what the... Uh... I don't remember off the top of my head from you know 25 years ago what the difference between the, <laughs> well the, the difference the, between they the two actually was
0: both dated from 1991 according to the sleeve, but one was the Main Street Electric Parade and the other one had Spectra Magic, at the
4: ah,
0: oh. which was really neat. And um, an interesting note that people should know about these videos because just as we talked about the older souvenir films where they pieced splice pieces from Disneyland and they spliced pieces from oh my what's God, amazing is a nightmare they did no <laughs> video. Um, color correction between the different scenes that they filmed at different times with different cameras, so you go from this this hard. Bright orange, uh, bright yellow '90s to some muted film that had been di- digitally converted. I mean, it's better than the films, but there certainly are some challenging uh, transitions in there. Could oh, so, you
2: tell Todd if the guy was really using the or, or the yellow Sony waterproof camera, you know? I oh, the...
0: <laughs> and that one no, though, that was definitely Faye. Yeah, he's he's going up and down like
1: really fast. That's my that's right. favorite scene in that. That's a great. There, one. there a are a couple. So
3: JT, go ahead. At Epcot 30, the very first Epcot celebration that D23 did, Imagineer Jason Grant brought that actual yellow camcorder oh, really? from the archives out onto stage really? to like show everybody, prop. and he—that's ha- awesome. Well, yeah, but yeah. I mean, it was a, it was the real one that they used in that video, and uh, and he said it was really heavy. Did people <laughs> get it,
2: or do you have to explain it?
3: Uh,
0: That crowd. People yeah. got it. Yeah. The, the way that the gentleman holds it in the film and like does this like movement is just. Yeah. Now I thing. have to
2: say, and this is like kind of a call out because I think I brought this up to you guys. My day at the Disney Studios VHS tape, they they do a panning shot off of Mickey and Minnie getting out of the limo, and it's like mm-hmm. right at the main entrance. But the word MGM is digitally blocked out. But oh wow. I, I don't know why it would be because like it wasn't.
3: On, on the entrance
2: sign. Yeah, side like it's like they, the, they... I remember you pointing that so out. So if somebody knows, I, I could link it in the show notes if really it really mattered. It could have been after
0: the it expired because didn't the, the rights expire, but they could use it, the signage, but maybe they couldn't distribute it? Uh, I don't know. It was kind of I'll weird. I'll tell you, I mean, there's,
4: a, there's a number of very odd things in those videos that could have to do with the ability to distribute the content in a different channel. Uh, For example, yes. none of the original attraction audio is used in either the Walt is either the Magic Kingdom or the Epcot video. So when you're watching of uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, it's a completely different dub of voices <sighs> in it. Same thing with American Adventure. It's like when Ben Franklin is talking, it's a completely different Ben Franklin. It's like and a
0: test B roll or something. Yeah. <laughs> it's the weirdest thing.
4: And the the only thing I could think of is, you know, they have the artists sign the rights to, you know, use them inside of the parks and, right. you know, on the attractions and perhaps on soundtracks. But they never, because home video didn't exist when those things were recorded, maybe they never got the rights to release it on home video. It's very off-putting. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. And the other thing is, as you said, it's like you'll see cross cuts between... Disneyland, Disney World. <laughs> I want to say there's shots of Euro Disney's uh, Phantom Manor in the Haunted Mansion section. It's awful. It's the type yeah. of thing that would dr- drive me insane when I would watch this. <laughs> so,
0: so if if you do have a lurking VHS, and this is this is the prize for for this month's audio rewind, uh, we'll we'll send one of them out. Uh, maybe you're. Winner's choice, how's that? Electrical Parade or spectrum Magic? But we'll send it out to you if you have VHS, pop this thing in. But uh, uh, all the other listeners out there, don't fret. We, since we do have it, we will release it at some point and let everybody see it. So it will be coming amongst the other 30, 40 different items that I've now converted for how that are ready, including some fantastic things. I have Disney Magic in Florida and these local broadcast stuff. Just amazing. And that's where we're going to find out where the, that Lime... Earrings came before the Lime Garage, so.
5: I want to know how how recorded resort video. Did he bring a VCR to a, yes, to a resort? So they, yes, you yes, did. I did. You did?
4: <laughs> I would. Oh. Wow. I would bring a VCR with me to to the resort <laughs> when we would stay, and um, especially the DVC resorts all had uh, the television was all just like a coax cable in the back, yeah. so I would just put the coax in and then snake it the rest of it out to the TV. And have my VCR sit between, uh, you know, the cable coming out of the wall and the TV. And I would record for two hours.
0: <laughs> but the best part is, Ted, is that he also recorded about an hour of the audio loop that came on with a test pattern at the end of the night. When the, Like, I guess they didn't think anybody was checking in late. They went to a test pattern and just played this awesome loop of... I think it's Magic Kingdom background. Yeah, it's it? the so Main Street. Uh, yeah, when you're, oh, we the Ticket to Transportation that. Center. We're getting that. We're getting there, JT. There's yeah. a lot of work to be done. So yeah. So but anyway, up to the
4: monorail station is the music that you heard at the monorail station, and then up to the main,
2: up to the you know um, the gates where you walk in. It was it right. That's like a holy grail to some YouTubers. I feel yeah. Like, like nobody yeah. recorded after no <laughs> the, no the, I... the, the Star Spangled Banner went and the show went <laughs> off and
0: yeah exactly. And I think we have no less than um, I'm looking here one two three four five different walt disney world info channels coming up so but anyway that's video we're talking audio so the video of a day at the magic kingdom uh can be yours if you know the answer to this month's audio rewind If you think you know the answers this month's audio rewind, send your guesses to contest at retrowdw.com. All correct entries will be listed with, will be entered into a random drawing to pick the winner. Please have all entries in by May twentieth, twenty nineteen. All right, well, it's time for this month's long-awaited main topic. Uh, as we promised you last month, we are going to take you back to Horizons. Now, I should probably give a little uh, synopsis here that this is going to take us uh, two, maybe even three episodes to get through. So if, so if you think we're going to talk about Brava Centuri and you know going on the details of the menu that was in the restaurant, the gentleman holding it, we're not going to get quite that far, but we are going to get into some of the early early details there is so much to talk about this this attraction and that's why we're calling this episode Horizons the Prologue right this is the this is the beginning um, of everything so how i'm going to let you and Ted lead you guys have done a tremendous amount of work here on it um, so let's uh let's start way 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 back even before there was a center of epcot <laughs>
4: Perhaps I think the most consistent element in the development of Future World, both before and afterwards, combined with World Showcase, was that drive to find corporate sponsors for the pavilions, Mm. Uh, because, you know, as we have talked about before, you know, Disney was a little company. Yes, it made a decent amount of money on the Magic Kingdom, but, you know, after the the oil crisis and a, a number of things, it's like they didn't have the money to go around and just build whatever they wanted. The company was very different than it is today, so... Um, they needed sponsors to help pay for, you know, the construction of what at that time was two separate facilities, a world showcase and uh, a future world like center for like commerce and industry. So um, in, in order to do this, they actually came out with publications and all kinds of materials to try to basically pitch and sell companies on Uh, the idea of of sponsoring Epcot the same way they would have sponsored a pavilion at a World's Fair previously. So in the 1976 publication, Epcot and Introduction, uh, which was a marketing piece to facilitate uh, corporate and institutional participation in Epcot, Disney laid up plans uh, for pavilion concepts that they felt would be very likely to succeed in that marketplace. And now Ted actually owns a copy of this document. So uh, I'm going to pass it over to him to just kind of talk about the the kinds of things, um,
5: the types of pavilions that they were trying to sell at that time. So, yeah, it's a very interesting document. It's It almost talks about Epcot as if it's going to be a not-for-profit public policy environment. The idea was to spur innovation, to spur invention, to better the world. In fact, I'll quote from it. It says the philosophy of Epcot, Epcot is designed to respond to the needs of people by providing an international forum where creative men and women of industry, government, and the arts can develop, demonstrate, and communicate prototype concepts and new systems and technologies and their application in creating better ways of living. So they really were pitching this thing as a way to improve the world, as a way to participate in uh, elements that would improve society, and it's almost like a think tank.
0: Sounds boring. Where are the characters? <laughs> exactly.
1: There's no
5: characters, there's no rides, there's no music, there's no food. A
0: better way of living. It sounds like Carousel Progress Part 2.
5: Yes. Uh, you can tell that this, in a way, GE is almost perfect for this yeah. uh, this pitch, because it talks about everything that they uh, that they stand for. So the document talks about three functions of Epcot. So there'd be three kind of elements. There'd be this institute which would be run by Disney, but in a not-for-profit way, it talks about. That would be the administration and coordination and funding of all these activities. Then there'd be satellites, and satellites are the, the areas that each company could participate in, where they'd research and develop and test out different inventions, different um, improvements to the world. And then there'd be a theme center. That theme center is the closest thing that we know of as Epcot. And they refer to it, uh, this is the first time we see something that actually I think became part of EPCOT because they talk about communicore in this section. In the theme section, they talk about three different areas that uh, three different pavilions that would allow people to interact with the technologies that the corporate sponsors are designing. There'd be a science and technology pavilion and that would talk about energy, transportation, agriculture, food production, oceanography, and outer space. There would be a community pavilion that would talk about education, health and medicine, and other vital components of the community, such as economics, speaking of excitement, planning and design, and government services. And then there would be a communication and arts pavilion talking about the world of information and communications. So all of this would be focused in, um, in something that they call CommuniCorps. The principal activities of the Epcot Team Center will take place in the CommuniCorps and theme Center pavilions. The commuter core will act as a corridor to arriving departing visitors. So this is the this is the first element I think we see where something from the mid 70s actually manifests in what Epcot actually was and Future World actually was built. Uh, this is I think the first piece we see of uh, something actually going from 76 to 81. And it's a very dry document. There's no pictures. There's no concept art. It really could be a dryer, very un-Disney-like, even for 76.
4: <laughs> but <clears throat> I think the thing that it does do, as you say, is it, like it pulls out some topics that actually do make it all the way to the end to, to the Epcot Center, as we know. So, you know, there was a, an, energy trans- an energy pavilion, a transportation pavilion, a food pavilion, oceanography is, is the seas, you know, space was... A- so, like, all these things that they were thinking about, uh, I think these are almost kind of like archetypes that... Of industries that they selected specifically because they figured, oh, you know, we'll go after a BP or an Exxon, or there ought to be somebody that would we'll sponsor, you know, an energy pavilion. We can go after Ford or uh, GM or another American company to sponsor transportation. So they really were kind of trying to pick, I think, things that were sponsorable, for lack of a better term. Um, and that's why we see these kind of survive out. Um, so even after World Showcase and Future World, and, and at this point, these are completely separate facilities. Future World and World Showcase are not like combined one thing yet. World Showcase is still a completely separate park. So even after they are combined in post seventy uh, six, this mix of pavilions stays intact through the rest of Epcot's development and sales cycle. Uh, and for the next two years, in documents and publications, we see you know that sort of familiar lineup that we're used to of Spaceship Earth, a Life and Health Pavilion, the Land, you know, a Transportation Pavilion, still not World Emotion yet, uh, Space, the Sea, Energy, and Communicore, and those keep sticking. Um, so that's and so this starts in what year was that um, that one? Published? 76, 76. 1976. okay yes so from 1976 to 1978 beginning in 1978 disney cannot get a sponsor to sign on to this thing <laughs> it it isn't until january of 1978 that general motors finally son, signs on to sponsor the transportation pavilion uh and then after they sign on it sort of starts you know a litany of the other ones starting on so exxon signs craft signs AT&T signs on to sponsor energy, the land, and Spaceship Earth, respectively, by the fall of 1978. But they were still having trouble trying to get sponsors for life and health and space. So, in very late 1978, or early 1979, Disney began circulating artwork that Herb Ryman did of a new pavilion focused on science and invention, as a potential replacement for either one of those two other pavilions, because they just weren't getting any traction from them, uh, and this is a really interesting piece of art. It was really only published in two places that we found so far. One was in uh, today. I mean, uh, one was uh, a Herb Ryman, uh, his A brush with Disney book, and I think there was uh, a uh, another Disney publication that it was in. It might have been an annual report or something, um, but it's one of these kind of very overlooked. Uh, Pieces, and what it looks like, and we'll um, we'll post a picture of it in the um, in the show notes so you can see it. Kind of looks like there's a carousel theater out front, and then next to that, uh, a glass building with a seat with a sort of large sweeping trapezoidal roof, Uh, kind of very you know kind of in the vein of what actually got built there. And then in the back, there's kind of like this large wedge-shaped building. Um, And eventually, this building did find its way into Epcot renderings in the position where the land pavilion was previously, because when it started out, the land was over on the left hand side where where horizons would end up going. That's right. Yeah. So um, there's a couple of pavilions that kind of swap around during this time. There's another uh, strange looking one that's uh has a lot of gold on it and kind of like a large spire that comes up on the right hand side with what looks like an observation deck on it and sort of a another uh ray section in the middle and you no know, i don't think anyone's quite identified with that as yet whether that was an, a different take on the space pavilion or maybe that would have been the arts and entertainment pavilion that uh, eventually became uh imagination but there <laughs> there was definitely some some stuff in play here to try to to try to make this happen. Um, so whether it was the carousel theater or the large amount of light pouring out of the glass windows in that rendering, we don't know. But on March 29th, 1979, Disney announced in a press release that GE, that GE did enter into an agreement to produce proposals for General Electric's participation in Epcot Center as a potential sponsor for science for the Science and Invention Pavilion which in itself is kind of interesting. It's like they didn't agree to sponsor it. They agreed to be able to be proposed to sponsor it. (laughs) But that was, I guess, enough at that time. And the press release goes on to say that the presentation will show how the scientific method and inventive process combined to provide a basis for new technology, serving the present needs of people, as well as fulfilling the hopes, their hopes for the future. So it sounds very kind of horizon-esque horizons-esque but also very fo- still very focused on science and invention and particularly applied science which you know besides ge being you know the light bulb people they had all kinds of other businesses that they could support as well
0: yeah yeah you know it's funny how in some of the show notes you had the list of the you know Epcot Center's three hubs and three scenes in Future World. I mean, and you you look at them, and Horizons pretty much checks every single box, and it really does line super super well to GE. I mean, if there was one pavilion that talked about everything in some way, this yeah. was going to be
4: it. And, and then it's kind of interesting too, because as we look back in kind of the early development, you know, gestational process of Epcot, they did want a pavilion. That would sort of uh, explain it all. So You know, their thought was when you went to the when you went to Epcot when it was going to be the sat- with the satellite things. You needed something to kind of explain what the heck you were looking at and what this right. was all about. And we even see some early um, some early stuff about Spaceship Earth, where it talks about Spaceship Earth as being sort of like the oh you have to go into this pavilion and then we'll tell you about what you're going to see, <laughs> and then we open up the doors and then you get to go experience the rest of the park. And I think this was kind of this idea of this pavilion was probably what they were going for originally with Spaceship Earth. And once they decided, oh, we're going to go pitch IBM on this being about, you know, the information age and dealing with information and then that getting morphed to be the AT&T story of communication, they kind of lost that one uh, that one ride that ties it all together. And that you're right. I mean, that's what Horizons is essentially, like, the thing that ties together all of Epcot. It's got the technology, it's got the humanity,
5: it's got a little bit of everything in it, so... It, it also seems surprising that, given GE and the history of Carousel of Progress, that GE wasn't earlier to board in this process, that they were the fifth one to join, and given Epcot and Future World, and all the concepts that were right there, and how Carousel of Progress was still around that GE was kind of late to the table. I don't know if Disney tried to get them earlier and they just weren't ready, but it just seemed like such a natural. It's
4: interesting because 1976, they're coming out with this. GE in 74 was basically signing on to move Carousel Progress from Disneyland to Walt Disney World. So they may have felt like, well, we have already got something there that's pitching our story. And it really may have been GE's internal shift from being a company that was about selling appliances and light bulbs to being a company that sold, you know, power generators and all kinds of other things. That may have been the thing that finally like tipped the scales. It was like, we bring, I think eventually they laid thing, in, we bring good things to life. Good things right? to life. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I think with that, maybe with that change of philosophy, it just made more sense for them to actually tell that kind of story rather than like the consumer appliance story. So, um, the question is, well, great. We, <laughs> we sold them on the idea of doing something. So now what's supposed to go into that building? Um, so what was, as was common at the time, Several teams within Imagineering were actually given the task simultaneously to come up with concepts for what the science and invention pavilion should be. Uh, with the best one being presented to GE, and then probably the second best one being held as a backup in case they hated the first one. So, <clears throat> according to George McGinnis's book *From Horizons to Space Mountain*, Claude Coates, being a senior Imagineer, got the first crack at doing many of the pavilions. And he was, in particular, was interested in large format, IMAX style film technology. And he wanted to incorporate that into the pavilion in some way. And I think that's likely what the sort of large wedge-shaped building in the back of the pavilion in the renderings is. I think that's a large format, IMAX style screen that he wanted to do something with. In Rolly Crumb's book, it's kind of a cute story. Roly relates how he worked with the team for three months on three concepts for the pavilions exhibits, and none of them got shown to GE, because Marty Sklar didn't like them. (laughs) But um, they are kind of interesting, so I'd like to talk about them. Um, In pre-show for his pavilion, um, which was designed by um, Scott Hennessy and Steve Kirk, um, they decided to take a humorous look at the process of trial and error, which is one way that you can do invention. Um, So that pre-show featured cavemen named T and E for trial and error, and they would continually (laughs) make mistakes until finally they invent an umbrella, which they named the parasol of progress as a humorous nod (laughs) to the carousel of progress. (laughs) Um, And then the main show would feature Thomas Edison discussing invention and all kinds of other topics. Um, And we forget about it now, but um, for those of you who don't know, Thomas Edison not only invented the light bulb along with, you know, a dozen other things, but he actually started the company, um, that was called Edison General Electric in 1890. So all of this, uh, in, in GE actually does, uh, you know, go back to, um, Edison and Ted have, you? am I wrong? Do you have some of the documents for
5: Edison square? I do. Yes. I have the proposal for Edison square in my collection, uh, which, uh, you know, seemed like it really could have been, very fit right in and i think maybe it was the cost or or it just took up too much space it didn't but yes i do have that that brochure
4: yeah so that was that was also uh, prior to the carousel of progress they're basically trying to to tell that show do that sh- you know a carousel of progress style show not at the world's fair but in disneyland and ge was pitched on that and there were uh, there was a whole section i think about uh, edison's laboratory and his workshop so that concept sort of uh, ended up living on um so uh oh and then after the main show uh enrollee's design guests would venture out into sort of an indoor village and they would uh people representatives would give small individual presentations uh based on concepts that ge uh gave to disney so basically when these uh and this is true of a lot of the pavilions they would go meet with a sponsor and they would just hand over like every publication that the company had and say like, oh, you know, find stuff in here to talk about. So Roly would go and sort of pull out uh, different pieces of information that they thought would be good to tell the public, and they built his shows around those things. And and uh, that sort of methodology was actually used throughout Epcot to an extent.
0: You know, it's uh, interesting there too. How it was last month we, when we talked about the Timekeeper when that was gonna, before it was going to be uh, the, the attraction, that went in Tomorrowland, where again they would inter- the performers would interact. But it's it's just interesting how these similar concepts are just always. They always come out. They're always pounded in some fashion, <laughs> right? And given a pitch, they go away, and then they come back, and eventually something, some part of it surfaces somewhere. It's just, it's really amazing how much... Yeah. how We can really draw lines to a lot of different attractions doing this research.
4: Well, even in the 64 World's Fair, the post-show there was a bunch of small houses and I think they were showing off the different features and benefits of the GE medallion homes. Yes. Oh, so
5: yeah. I, I mean, the medallion city. Yeah. So it was
4: almost, I feel like it was, it was almost listed, uh, lifted completely from, that. but again, it's like, if you know what works, it's like, well, I'm just going to use that thing that we know works. And, and Roly did work on some parts of that, um, of that pavilion for 64 mm-hmm. uh, and part of the Ford pavilion. So, I mean, he was familiar with, uh, with that thing. So, yeah, um, this is also interesting. This is mentioned in, in a couple of ways, but uh, uh, in a couple of other places. But I, I think uh, with a couple of sources, we kind of finally pulled it together to a little bit more of a complete story. Um, also on Roly's team was uh, a guy named Stan Freeberg, who some of you may or may not have heard of. Um, he was a satirist, sort of a comedian, uh, a radio performer, and also like a really innovative uh, guy in advertising now. Uh, those of you who are old enough may actually remember his voice from a series of Encyclopedia Britannica commercials that ran from 1988 to
0: 1992. Is this the one with the kid in it too? Yes! Oh my gosh, I remember those. We're going to play it right now. Yeah, all right.
2: My folks make sure I get a good breakfast. You know, plenty of fiber and all that stuff. Also, they bought me nice school clothes. They got me a computer, a video camera, a compact disc player. But the problem is... Hardly any of this stuff can really help me with my schoolwork.
1: There is something you could have which would help you a lot. Do you know what that is?
2: No, but I'm afraid you're going to tell me.
1: Uh, yes, it's the new Encyclopedia Britannica.
2: Encyclopedia Britannica. Now you tell me.
4: So in his his prime, Freeberg had a string of commercially successful parody radio singles and albums, including Stan Freeberg Presents the United States of America, which was actually a huge, you know, hit comedy album back then. And that I feel is probably what was likely to have him be included on this team. Um, and at this time, Wed was actually bringing in unusual outside talent to consult on Epcot projects. And, and this is something we're just starting to find out uh, about now. Um, there were some Hollywood directors and, and really big names, uh, interesting people that were <laughs> that were brought into Wed to sort of assist in Epcot to give it a little jump start.
5: I have an archive of a, I have an archive of Joseph Mankiewicz, who was asked to write a full script for Spaceship Earth. Yes, and he has a long I have a long series of notes where he sketched out very enthusiastically what Spaceship Earth should be about and an entire story.
4: That that in particular is the one that I was thinking of, but I did know that you had that because that is. F-
5: fascinating that they it would is have fascinating.
1: Him.
4: yeah he
5: got five thousand dollars for that. that's all that was for. okay well, well that's the one fine, payment yeah. i have i don't know if he got more than that but that's the payment slip that comes with it
4: oh that's amazing uh and he was the director of
5: i want to say oh my god he, i should know that he
4: wrote uh, and directed was it um oh wait
5: something very is it uh, Mokie, yeah i, I want to say it um now i'm gonna look it up all about, eve. That's yes, all about eve yes yes
4: so that's such a weird like oh yeah get the director get the director of all about eve in here to work on this and but he was like in his 70s at the time yeah brilliant i mean absolutely brilliant guy though so yes um anyways so freeberg had been working on material for his second volume uh, of the united states of america And he actually had a bunch of skits uh, already in the can that he was working on about inventors uh, at the time, including one about Thomas Edison. So I'm going to play a little bit of that so you can get a taste of what maybe his take on it was.
5: Mr. Edison? Yes. I've heard a great deal about your new incandescent bulb. There's no wicks to trim. It's cheap to run. And here's the best part. The bulb never
0: wears out it what no i've designed it so it lasts a
5: lifetime ah mr edison don't you think it would be better for all concerned if the bulb blew out occasionally but that's not what i had in mind think of the expense people be running out and buying light bulbs every time they turned around a lifetime bulb is all wrong it's against the scheme of things in this country you don't want to be Un-American, do you? Well, you've been a big help to me. Uh, What was your last name again, General? Electric.
4: So in the end, Freeberg's ideas just proved to be way too unconventional for Wed. Uh, At one meeting, he suggested that the building be redesigned to look like a box of light bulbs with one light bulb (laughs) sticking out of the top since GE was going to be the sponsor, and that didn't really go over so well. Um, in another, he proposed that instead of waiting in a queue, guests be put into small moving cars with a TV screen inside of them and just kind of go perpetually around in a circle until the theater was ready to load. And after that idea was shot down, Freeburg left, wed, and just never came back again. <laughs> um, meanwhile, there was another group working on an idea. Um, George Guinness, Mc, sorry, George McGuinness was teamed with Colin Campbell. And together, they also came up a, with an idea where Thomas Edison's laboratory would be an introduction to the General Electric story. Uh, and that was solid enough that, um, that that concept was actually presented to GE. The only problem is uh, the chairman of GE, Reginald Jones, hated the idea. Hated it, hated it, hated it. He didn't want another history show because the company had just paid to move the Carousel of Progress to the Magic Kingdom. He had no interest in that at all whatsoever. Uh, and I'll, I will say after doing like three or four days of research on this, I went back and opened up my copy of Michael Crawford's excellent book, The Progress City Primer, and I everything that I went through the process of researching was sitting in that book already um, with a little extra detail. So uh, I'm going to quote a, a bit of stuff out of there and encourage you, if you're interested in the content of this episode, go pick up his book. Uh, it is really good and uh, we'll be able to flesh out even, even more of this kind of stuff. Um, he says that GE actually insisted that the Biblian be, quote, a ride, a thrilling ride and th- through a future tomorrow. So that sent the design team back to the drawing board again (laughs) to start over. Um, And and so they did. Uh, uh, Claude Coates got put back on the project with an industrial designer named Bob Kurzweil and an architect named Bill Norton. Uh, And together they started working on track layouts and a ride system uh, based on the Peter Pan flying boats. And the reason that happened was because Claude was still super interested in, you know, an IMAX style screen. And they thought it would be really neat to be able to put, you know, uh, a guest like in the middle of that giant screen. So they wanted to do, you know, some sort of like tracked flying uh, uh, car uh, that eventually became sort of the one sided car that that we have um, today. Um Eventually, um, McGinnis and Campbell were put back onto the project with a different architect named George Rester. And by 1980, we see a rendering from Herb Heim- uh sorry, by 1980, we see a rendering by Herb Ryman uh, of the building as we would come to know and love it, sort of that large trapezoidal sort of spaceship design. Um,
0: yeah, and it, it really was meant to, meant to be a spaceship, which was kind of interesting. But then obviously, they played off of the horizon that it was supposed to have that horizon line on it across the top which yeah. is really really interesting
4: yeah and but it's funny though because it really is almost in some ways if you look at that original rendering from herb ryanman it's almost like they took the concept of the first building and just made it super big
0: uh, <laughs> so we're just gonna make it larger that's all do. but
4: i mean the reason that it was as big as it was really is the whole thing was just constructed around the the OmniMax screens that were inside that's right. that's really the key to the entire design it's like they they started with a layout of that and in fact mcginnis says in his book it's like once they had that sort of shape of the building figured out it's like no matter what they did they had to make sure that all the track conformed to the inside of of the building that we that we knew and any development that went forward at that point was actually just done to fit that footprint so once that building was designed that was it it was all finished Um, (laughs) and um ted has very a very nice document uh, from GE uh, uh, about their development process with Disney, and I'm going to have him go through some of that and describe some of the things that they—they they actually, to me, I feel like they provided a lot of guidance, um, which really I think um, made the pavilion what it was. So I'm going to have him talk about that.
5: What I can sense is GE really did want this to be a show for GE attraction. They really wanted it to be something that conveyed the promise of GE in an entertaining way. So this magazine, which I assume was written for clients of GE or marketing material, uh, marketing material for press purposes, was, was written by a guy named Ned Landon, who was the uh, official liaison between GE and Disney. It's, in, it's written in an odd way in that he interviews himself. He says he was a reporter and a journalist, so the questioner is named Landon, and the answerer is named Ned, and so he goes back and forth and asks himself questions. Um, But what's very very clear here is that GE and Disney were on the same page, because I also have another document, which is the official Horizons cast member brochure that they gave to cast members so that they could learn about what Horizons was, and they have some very similar themes. So Ned talks about that the message of Horizons was that with the science and technologies already at hand, today's dreams can become tomorrow's realities, and we know that's the theme of Horizons. He's very clear that it's not meant to be a show just to pitch GE products, and in fact, it would be foolish to do that because this was set far enough in the future that actually trying to create product designs for something that GE actually sold would be quote-unquote foolish. So they didn't even want to get involved with that. But the goal of the show was to show that in the future, life can be made to be more pleasant, which a company like GE could fulfill for customers. So it's, a, it's, uh, it's meant, the, quoting from the magazine, the Horizons experience is meant to make you feel good about the future and to feel good about a company called General Electric, which is trying to make good things come true. He says that the goal of the ride was really to look at the future in something that could be achievable which is very important for both Disney and G. the materials indicate, family was a big focus. In fact, uh, Ned says that there was some thought that in the future family would be less important somehow or that the concept of family would go away. That's because we'd
0: again, all be looking at our smartphones. Right. <laughs> that, of
5: course, that's <laughs> silly. That will never happen. No. Um and that, but they believed that technology could actually bring families together. So that was why the family was the centerpiece of the whole attraction. Of course, they've already had experience with that from Carousel of Progress. Number three was that Horizons ties all of Epcot together, like we already talked about earlier in the show. And this language was used both by Disney and by GE. This is not Buck Rogers. This is not spaceships flying through space everywhere. And this is not laser guns and spacesuits. This is realistic, achievable topics so he goes through the history of the names of horizons so horizons was supposed to be called century three written both ways with the letter three uh, sorry the number three and then the roman numeral three but as when the development process was happening in the late 70s this is very close to the bicentennial and it was felt although i don't think i quite get this but maybe sitting here in 2019 it's hard it was seen that that century calling it century made it seem too focused on america because it was too close to the bicentennial but epcot was supposed to be about the entire world and i think
4: i I think i can explain that
5: so great so
4: the thing that that i think i think they got excited about calling it century three because the bicentennial was such a big deal like the country was in the midst of bicentennial fever so they're like oh we'll play off of that and because we're coming up, we'll be coming up with the tricentennial. So this will be what it's like in America during the tricentennial. And once they realized, oh, wait a minute, this is a world market that will be coming to Epcot to experience Epcot. They're not going to know what the bicentennial is. And they certainly won't know, you know, what the tricentennial is. So ditch that name for something that makes
5: more sense to people coming in from across the world. But as we all know, that did get into the ride in it, one particular place. It did. It did which we can talk about next time as a tease.
1: <laughs> um,
5: so the next name that came up was the unfortunate title of Future Probe, which uh, the, uh, even in the uh, in the G Magazine, it was like somebody came up with that. I don't think they were, really want to attribute it, but it, it sounded too medical, which it definitely does. <laughs> so that was quickly abandoned. And then Horizons came. I don't know that we know exactly who came up with Horizons. Do we, Hal? I don't think it's ever been attributed. No, I don't
4: know we know that exactly.
5: But it felt right to GE. It was perfect. It showed about, talked about the future, horizons. There's always another horizon and GE is always developing for the future. So it felt right. So then they knew that various GE products were actually be used in the creation of the show itself, in the in the actual mechanics and the technology. And they go through in this magazine, a long list of different TV projectors and Lexan polycarbonate for the ride vehicles and g motors and g controls and g lighting g robots there's 10 or more items that ge manufactured that actually went into the creation of the ride and so it wasn't just that ge was some sponsor and then they kind of just didn't care they actually put a lot of their new technology at the time into making the ride work
4: and this is one of the points i always like to make on the show it's like the sponsors not only gave money but they also gave expertise from their r&d departments uh, which is one of the reasons why epcot was so fresh and new and different because we were really getting new stuff uh but they also a lot of the companies like Gee. it's like they lent actual new technology um, to that pavilion and it was the first time that any of us actually got to experience a lot of these things. And, and to me, that was really what made the corporate sponsorship important at that time. It wasn't just, you know, they threw $30 million at them. It's like they gave them access to the labs and they gave them access to all this new stuff
5: that Disney had before anybody else did. I just want to go back for a moment. The family part point i made actually came from tom fitzgerald who was one of the designers engineer and i believe is also the young boyfriend of the daughter right in the video yes
4: he was the writer on that uh on that show and yes he was he
5: was the uh the uh what they call him The beach boy. The beach boy. (laughs) Working on the sub, yes. So he's the one who said, and this comes out of The Horizons, cast member manual, quote, I wanted to emphasize family. Some people may feel the family unit may not exist in the future. I'm not sure how that came to be. But I feel that advances in transportation and communication may actually bring families closer together. So I just want to point that out. So then the GE magazine talks about the big prologue and the promise mural that robert mccall designed which was the first thing you see when you get into the pavilion they talk the magazine talks about that it took 10 months to complete it measures 19 by 60 feet and i think at some point that was removed right in the 90s before the ride actually shut
4: down yes it was a couple of years in that got taken out of the exit and replaced with more ge branding um, because when they would do post, uh, ride surveys, people didn't get the connection between GE and the pavilion so much, which was a real shame. Cause that, uh, we'll talk a lot more about that in the next episode, but that painting was really important, I think, to, to sort of set the tone. Uh, and, and he worked not only stuff that ride that, uh, painting that was at the end, but he also did some, some concept artwork that ended up in the beginning of the show as well in the, in the pre-show area. So
5: Yep. So so there's a whole – so George McGinnis gets a section in this magazine where he gets to talk about the uh, attraction. He talks about how that um, they actually turn to scientists at both – at Princeton, at NASA, at Caltech, and the University of Arizona to help make sure all the technology that you see in the attraction is based on achievable, realistic goals, maybe 20 or 30 years in the future, but that they're not just making up stuff and doing quote-unquote Buck Rogers Um, and then marty Sklar is also quoted in the uh in the magazine he gets a section he says and i think this is really key and is why we all love horizons it's obvious but it's a key quote horizons is a type of pavilion i think walt had in mind when he visualizes epcot and i think that is so true there is really no more epitome of what epcot was from that movie than horizons and that's why it's been so beloved. Tom Fitzgerald then goes to note that the, what's, what he loves about some of the connections to Horizons is that one of the people worked on Horizons, a guy named Wathel Rogers, started at Disney in 1939, worked on Mary Poppins, and worked on Mr. Lincoln at the 1964 World's Fair, so that there is a connection between Disney's past, Disney's future in Horizons, and the future one other point I want to make is that the 1983 um, Disney annual uh, report has Horizons on the front cover of it. It has the, um, the Prologue and the promised mural on the front of it. Ron Miller is the CEO of the Time, and he said that the reason the mural is on the cover is because it's a symbolic representation of the achievement of your company in 1983. It was a year in which the foundations were built that placed Walt Disney Productions on the threshold of exciting new Horizons. So I think GE really helped Disney shape this ride. This is what this magazine makes very clear and really was, I think, unlike other pavilions, at least that I can determine, really played a very 50-50 hand with Disney in designing the look and feel of this ride and really believed what the spirit of it was. It wasn't there just to get some more sales. It really was there to talk about the value of the future and I think they bought it, and I think again that's why this ride is so beloved, because it really, it in, in, really in, had the DNA of all this passion in it, and you could te- you could see it in the ride.
0: Yeah, you're you're absolutely right, Ted. I mean, it really does embody the whole thing, and it's got that entire spirit from start to finish. And I I I commend the Imagineers for imagination and and, and Universe of Energy and Spaceship Earth and all the other attractions that we got there. I, I don't think it's very hard to put your finger on what exactly caused this ride to be so detailed um, and embody so much and, and instill so much hope and feeling. It's just it's it's crazy. and i I think the listeners are all going, yeah, 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 you know it's it it did it. it did it. Um, and it's really hard to to understand, you know you know why it was. I, I think one of the interesting things
3: that we've come up with, too, is you've heard how run through the litany of all star Imagineers who took a crack at this and then were put on the bench and then pulled off the bench. We have talked before about part of the appeal overall of Epcot is that it was the magnum opus of mm. all of the original Imagineers, almost all of them kind of being brought back out of retirement or semi-retirement Uh, or from private contracting back into the company to contribute, and then a second generation, the Tony Baxters of the world, uh, having their contribution. And in this case, this ride had all these cracks at it by these classic guys, and then Tom Fitzgerald comes in and writes the show that ultimately gets produced. Uh, But it's also interesting you're talking about the corporate involvement this is probably the most notable pavilion where the corporate sponsors were very involved in the content and the feel almost every aspect of the show where so many of these other pavilions, it was, you know, we've made our pitch to AT&T or the bell system and Mm -hmm. we're giving we're giving our best, our best stab at it. The last thing I'll note is you were talking about how this ride got made. And it, it, it is very difficult for someone who doesn't study corporate history or understand the apex of uh, the big conglomerate, uh, the the big business of the 70s and 80s. And the 80s really were the last decade where those businesses could do, I mean, they were so big and had so much money, they just did whatever they wanted um if the guy decide you know the the famous story of the living seas is you know the guy that was the head of united technologies which has nothing to do with the seas wanted a pavilion at epcot so his company (laughs) put up 30 million dollars to build a giant aquarium like here like general electric now everything is little sub companies and 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 they have an ownership interest but don't really run it and Nothing is as massive. Tech companies now. Tech companies are the new big business of, of today. But but back then, GE made military equipment and computers and, and homes, you know, appliances and televisions and anything else you could think of. GE had a hand in it. And so having those kinds of resources... You could afford to tread water for five years before you decided what you wanted your ride okay. to be, and keep assigning different parts of your company to to the project, and and uh, and keep telling a company like Disney, nope, don't like this one, come back <laughs> with something else. And so that's what happened. Yeah. And I
5: and GE was one of the few companies I think at the time, and they were the pinnacle of corporate America. They were seen as the A company; no one could beat mm-hmm. them. What's interesting is. Disney's income in 1983, net income, was $93 million. Last year, it was, 12, it was almost $13 billion. So they have wow. easily suppressed GE as the corporate icon. But GE at the time may have been one of the few companies that could actually go toe-to-toe or probably just really kind of overshadow Disney and have that hand. Sure. I, I also think it's important, and I don't know, I'm not putting down Rolly Crump. But I'm glad that his whimsical that whimsical style of Rolly Crump didn't get too involved in Horizons. I think what makes Horizons, at the, and especially before it opened, important was that it wasn't Small World. It wasn't Haunted Mansion. It wasn't Pirates. It wasn't that overly whimsical. And I think that's why Stan Freeberg didn't work out. It really was, there was a seriousness to it, a little bit of gravitas, even more than Carousel of Progress, that I think allowed it to really make a connection with people and feel yeah. like they could live in that world you don't you can't live in haunted mansion or pirates or even carousel mm-hmm. progress which is just so comical this felt real and achievable and that was really a center point of what ge wanted to do
0: right and, and gee going back to their whole corporate thing i mean they were a very trusted company too right I yes mean, they were yes. in every home the trust yes. level that you gave for your television your microwave your your vacuum i mean just light bulbs you name it it was just everywhere Um, So there really was a a really, really interesting level of trust there.
4: So with all of these goals in mind, the team at WED began developing scenes and storylines for the attraction. Uh, But as we mentioned before, not everything made the cut, and Brian has some really interesting things about the music to share with us tonight because there, was, uh, there were some people that took a shot at the songs for the pavilion that didn't quite work out.
3: Well, as you'd imagine, uh, if you're building an attraction for General Electric that is a sequel to Carousel of Progress, you would turn to the brother, famous brother songwriting team of Dick and Bob Sherman uh, who wrote "There's a Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow"? And then were commissioned later when GE wanted to change the song and Carousel of Progress to something not dwelling on what's tomorrow, but that tomorrow's here today. That they're that they've achieved great things today in their General Electric appliances and products, and they wrote the now now is the time the new uh, the new uh, song that took up residence in the Carousel of Progress from 1975 when it moved to the Magic Kingdom until 1993 when the modern and current show uh, was was put uh, into production. As you can imagine, with 72 different Imagineers all having their hand in this and different General Electric teams as time went on, uh, I think there was a general assumption when they were writing the show uh, that the Sherman Brothers would ultimately provide the soundtrack to the point uh, that the Sherman Brothers wrote a song and that that song ended up being recorded in final version five different ways. And the reason you'd record a song five different ways, think about Journey to an Imagination where they also wrote the song and you have the instrumental version and then you have the versions from inside the ride and different scenes. You hear it in a different way. So the song that they wrote, there's a smile on the face of tomorrow. We're going to play all the versions mm-hmm, for you. Hmm, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so so they wrote this song. It was very triumphant. It, it, it's, a, it's a Sherman Brothers song. Yeah. It's what you would expect to hear. Uh, and in a, a note here, because we're gonna, it's going to come into play in a moment, uh, in 1979, the Walt Disney Studios hired George Wilkins as uh, the studios musical score director and the official uh, music, musical director for Imagineering. And the idea was that Buddy Baker was approaching retirement. And that they wanted to have someone new on staff to provide the music for different things that they were doing in film and the theme parks. So he worked with the Sherman Brothers in orchestrating uh, all five of those versions that were recorded. We'll play a snip uh, of them. Uh, The first version you'll hear uh, was a very jaunty Disneyland Main Street-esque version that's... Got the Sherman Brothers signature, so we'll play a little clip of that here.
1: There's a smile on the face of tomorrow, like a heart.
3: And then uh, you will hear uh, the three other versions that they recorded, uh, varying voices and tempos, uh, but the, essentially the same song. So uh, we'll play a couple small clips here just so you can kind of get a sense of the different versions.
1: Get out of it's a rich, happy lifetime we spend, for the- As we reach for new horizons As we climb out of yesterday's shadows
3: And then finally, uh, there was this final version, which uh, may have been for the end credits of a video or something, because uh, if you are familiar with the, uh, is her name Mary McGregor, uh, how the Torn Between Two Lovers, is that is that the lady that sang Torn Between Two Lovers? Oh, yes. but it's very much, in the, in the latter half of the 70s, there were, uh, you know, these piano ballads that were sung by forlorn women uh, and men. And uh, this version, that's what it evokes to me. Like I, I expect Casey Kasem on the weekly top 40 to be uh, sending this song out to somebody. So let's just play a little clip of that one. We
1: have. Endless-
3: So those are your different versions of Reach for New Horizons, which is the full title. Uh, And like I said, they they got fully produced. Uh, It got through all the production process. You had a whole team of musicians record these things. And so they eventually take it to a meeting with the General Electric folks, uh, somewhat into the design process and construction or preparation process for the for the final version of the ride. And they're sitting in a meeting uh, and it's. Disney guys there and GE guys there and George Wilkins actually tells this story on Tammy Tucky's podcast the Tiara talk show and uh, he said they sat there and they played the song and they finished the song and before anybody from GE could say anything Imagineer Randy Bright turned to the room and said I really don't like that song (laughs) (laughs) so I assume there was probably some discussion beforehand but in front of the GE people randy said i think we should let george here uh take a crack at another song uh, for the ride Uh, and he wrote That became the final song for the ride uh, that we hear in many different orchestrations throughout the ride uh, and on Epcot and Disney soundtracks.
1: Uh, And the Sherman
3: Brothers were uh nonplussed and just moved on to working on Journey into Imagination. And they were doing a lot of work for the for the studio, at the, for, for the Imagineering division at that time. That's what
5: happened. And George Wilkins' music got into the ride and the Sherman Brothers didn't. And so important that that happened. Again, the, the Sherman Brothers, I think, are a little too whimsical for this. And having spent... I, I go watch a ride through of Horizons maybe once every 10 days. And I have the soundtrack on my iPhone, which I listened to on my long walk home. That ride, I'm gonna say 30% of the enjoyment of that ride is that is his score and the that song. And there's a again a gravitas and a sincerity and a belief that this ride is important and talks about the future that is a is part of that ride's dna that if it was a sherman brothers thing it would feel again a little bit too too whimsical i keep using that word and i think that's what makes horizon so so important is george wilkins score
0: yeah there was a level of seriousness with it that you didn't get from the sherman brothers yes. song you know yeah, what right. i mean even for even from the opening notes yes. you know if we
3: can dream yeah. It, yeah then we did it yeah like a preamble and it it there's a there's a majestic subtlety Absolutely. to that to that comp- composition that fits so well with that ride and it's not even that and, subtle uh, and it's
5: fine it's not that subtle it's okay
0: yeah and and, yeah. and you're we're going to find out next month and, and as we work to tune all the scene music that we do have with the scenes as we talk about it um you know, you're you're gonna find wait, out. Wait, wait,
3: right. Rod. How- We're actually gonna get into the ride at some point. <laughs> we well, I'm thinking.
0: I don't know. Maybe in a few <laughs> years or some point, you're going. You're going to really see and and feel the theme for that specific room. The only other attraction where they took a, a theme like that and always kind of changed the theme was World of Motion, and we talked about that. How when you're in the uh, the scene with the Chinese junks, it's an oriental sound to the world of motion and you're in the 50s and it's kind of got that, you know, doo-wop beat or whatever you want to call it. Here, there was just so much powerful instrumental music that was that was put into the different scenes. Um, it's 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 quite amazing. And then you, also with the music, you know, you get into um uh, there's a great big beautiful tomorrow, which has a cameo. Uh, yes, say
5: yes, in this as well. Yeah. Yes, yes. And the the only other thing, you know, obviously it's a small role. The music there is so important. But in terms of this level of this style of music, Soren is the only other soundtrack I think mm. plays that critical, significant, serious role. Maybe a non instrumental role. That's what I feel that um, is kind of the most equivalent, also as well. Maybe in addition to World of Motion
4: well it you know i think i was going to say it is funny that
5: you talked about how that
4: has more of a whimsical feel because they do use it's a great big beautiful tomorrow in yes. the first half of the ride
5: which is the whimsical right. which is the part of the ride part of the ride the, the and incarnations yes, and yes, then it transitions
4: yes. and then goes into the other theme so i that's yep. a i i think you guys actually you know sort of hit the nail on the head on that of there was a place for it it worked in that context yep. but then there was something else that was needed that was, you know, yeah. not quite as you know, the Shermans have a very optimistic view. When they write those types of songs, it's like these big, you know I don't I don't even know how to describe there's just these very big broad They're the
0: they're, they're the they're the right before you go to curtain at the end of Act yeah. One.
5: <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> they really are. And all my comments about the, the the seriousness, of course, are the second part of the ride when you get to the actual world, the, the build up is yes. supposed to be a look back at what people thought when they were not really serious about the future when they were being Buck Rogers inspired. And then now we'll show you what future really could be. And that's where I think that score is so important. So I'm glad, I'm glad you brought that up.
0: And the score, I mean, we have to remind everybody too, that if you didn't experience all of future world at this time, you know, all of the attractions had fantastic scores. Like the other score that comes to mind that to me is just embodies some of the same hope was the, Re- and we talked about this on the Spaceship Earth podcast episode uh, that the original score for at least from the Walter Cronkite era when you yep. came to the Apex was so powerful. Yes, yeah. And this has that same level, but it was the entire ride. Yes, you know, that was that was the difference of it.
5: And it was the whole, and it stayed on for the entire uh, 16 years it existed. Spaceship Earth. and
0: about 16 to days after you left the attraction. <laughs> yes, <too. laughs> yes, that's
5: right. It was hard to to forget those lyrics and that music.
0: Yeah. Well, you'll definitely, everybody will definitely uh, have that earworm uh, next month. We have uh, no less than, I think, 104 different versions and clips and music that we're going to uh, interject into uh, the show next month when we start walking through the entire attraction, or suspended through the attraction, <laughs> I guess we should say, as we get into the ride details of how that attraction Where I, I was looking through some of the uh, the maintenance manuals. It's just... It's mind-boggling, you know. I know the same stuff goes on for Peter Pan and, you know, Carousel and all that, but it's just, it's just mind-boggling. That I, I don't come number. after the
3: full episode we do on the sponsor lounge.
0: That's
5: right. <laughs> yeah, we have a whole thing on that. And future, we so can't forget. I have a document. I have a sponsor lounge document, and I have the ride control system uh, document Perf- as well. Per- perfect. So I've been researching scene numbers.
0: And, and matching them to the music in preparation for next month. So. Excellent. Are the
5: scene numbers
0: in Roman numerals or <laughs> just? Only for the first half of the ride, before the digits were actually invented. So <laughs> so, um, so how should we talk a little bit about maybe about the building since next month's going to really be when we, we sure. go inside or yes, hyping, hyping. Yeah, the why, track, don't, why so. don't you
4: talk a little bit? Because that is, I mean, it is a monumental structure. Uh, it was certainly lit, lit very effectively by ge lighting so yeah why don't you tell us a little bit about that
0: sure so i i was doing some research and I, and and you know there weren't a lot of good information on the actual size of the building and, the, and, and some of the blueprints were hard to read but let's talk about some other pavilions here and see where it fits in so first of all the the ride that it replaced that replaced it uh, mission space is about 200 feet by 234 feet um and world of motion if you without including test tracker on the side, it has a diameter about 320 feet. Um, Horizons was 390 feet long and 300 feet wide at its, at its tall of its widest and, and you know, furthest, furthest That's point. that's That's big boy. The only, yeah, the only thing that eclipsed it was world, uh, was the universe of energy. But I, you know, being that that was what five sided, right? Or f- six sided only at that far w- wide point. Is it 460 feet? So this is another massive building, but I think what was really kind of imposing about is where they placed it in the park. Um, you didn't walk down to it. You actually had to walk up to it. And I think that really lifted the building higher, gave it this presence that no other building, maybe the, the land maybe used to before the trees grew, cause you have to walk up to that too. But it was so imposing and there was just nothing in the way of it. No trees. It had this clear cut, line of sight to it that i think just made it st- stand out
4: yeah and what i think is interesting is because it was that trapezoid shape mm. it wasn't as if the building just cape you know you are very used to conventional buildings where like you know the outside walls go down and touch the ground right that's not how this was the you know right. it kind of it was kind of sort of like a pyramid at the top but then all of a sudden it cut down it in it really didn't look like the building was integrated with the ground around it, it really just looks like someone came and set it down yeah, and walked away and it could take off and <laughs> fly away at, at any time it wanted to
0: you expect like landing gear doors, landing yeah, doors exactly. to come out down the side. Right. So, um, so I did some digging I, and, and pun intended here. We saw an awesome photo recently of the footings going in for horizons and i was like they i I think it was the angle the photo taken from the air but they looked really really deep so i dug into some of the blueprints to find out now well the numbers i'm going to give you are not the actual uh heights these are actually uh and how you live in florida so you know you can relate to this these are the above sea level amounts right so this is going to be like 20 feet above sea level so you know if the peninsula floods you're going to know what if horizons was safe or not (laughs) um so what was interesting, the lowest point was at the 80-foot level, and that was probably the very bottom of an elevator shaft that ran up and down the, the center of it. Um, you had to then uh, come up about uh, 29 feet to get to the entry. So the bottom of the basement, the, you know, literally what was touching the ground, was, it was almost 30 feet below where you were entering. So that's okay. part of why you had to climb up. Because when you went in, we're going to talk about the load and unload. You actually descended in futureport five feet down, so now you're mm-hmm. at 104. Um, the highest part of the ride. Uh, anybody want to guess at what what scene it was? Uh, the Omni, the Omni Max. The the Sphere, Yeah.
5: Yep. Atmosphere. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So the track was at 134 feet. So you've now you've gone up 30 feet. Um, so kind of about 15 feet a story that's a you know probably about average for a, a large scale building uh, and, and your seats were at 128 and your head was around 131. So at this point, you know give or give or take a couple inches, um, you're about 20 some f- feet off where you entered from, but much higher than the rest of Epcot. Um, and the highest point outside was 185 feet. So if you know you subtract that from the entry um, at, at 109, you get about 76 to 80 feet. So the castle's 180. I think if I recall, correctly, spaceship earth is 180. This is 80 feet. This is, you know, nearly half the size of those just for an attraction. I can't think of any other attraction building. That's <laughs> 85 feet tall, you know? Well, the new guardians of the galaxy. <laughs> well, yeah. Okay. Is that the, that's the show building. Hal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, and you know, it's funny. You point that out. How, I mean, I, granted that's a roller coaster. Um, but what's i think is really unique about all of the especially because you could see all of horizons is that we forget that the epcot show buildings uh, especially those on, on on the east side of future world were designed so that you could see the show building was the was the actual attraction building and we forget about right. that that everything it was encompassed it was it was sided on all sides to be themed um you know, when you get over to it, it's funny when you go over to the land and journey into magic, it gets a little wonkier over there. Um, but, you know, this this is one of the three or four, if you include Spaceship Earth, that really showed the the, the whole thing. Um, so I know next month we're going to get into this show, but let's let's tease a little bit with some of the statistics. I know we, we did this way back on the the World of Motion uh, episode. Um, so depending on which document you read there's anywhere from 50 or 51 audio animatronics so that's our our homework for next month i we'll have i have 50
5: out. according to the cast member manual it's 50
0: it's 50 okay and i have another document that says 51 so we'll, we'll we'll do that uh 770 props yeah. 24 sets but uh I've, I've been doing research on the scenes there's what is a set and what is a scene is kind of blurry but we'll we'll go through that um It's really interesting that the the number of video projectors versus film projectors, the film projectors eclipse the video projectors (laughs) um, by three and 12 and nine, respectively. Uh, And then I don't know what they classify as as special effects as 50, but, you know, we'll figure that out. Um, I guess that may be the basketball men or the orange. Oh, yeah. Who knows? Yeah, Yeah. those might be the special effects. Yeah. all right, here's a conversion that Brian can do. Uh, it, the, the ride speed was 1.5 feet per second. So maybe we can figure out if, uh, how fast we were really going. Fast enough for uh, Spike Tripper to, to be able to get in and out, or so slow enough, I should
3: say. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm disappointed that we mentioned building heights without throwing everybody's favorite fact about building heights in Walt Disney World. What are the two tallest structures at Disney World now? Everest and uh the Hollywood Tower Hotel at 199.5 feet wow, that's do you right. know why
0: yes they are
3: yes see Todd knows That's if, that's 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 the th- fun thing that they always tell you on their right. little VIP tours and stuff
0: right 200 feet is the FAA minimum where you need the red light so they don't want to just destroy the look of putting a red light on the top for aircraft warning so 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 what were we doing 1.5 feet per, per second. Yeah, Is that- yeah. What do we got on miles per hour on that? So
3: well, if you were traveling, uh, that's 1.022 miles per hour.
0: Wow. <laughs> pretty slow. So pretty slow. Yeah, well, to, to get you there. Yeah. <laughs> so here's Pete's what- walking. <laughs> 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 and how you and I commented when we did the world of motion episode, uh, how the ride time was. That was a long ride. I forget what we said. It, it was. was but-
4: a, yeah. And, a, and, a world of Motion? Yeah, 14, yeah 15 minutes somewhere in that facility. yeah
0: and right here horizons 14 point five seven minutes i mean you're at 15 that's a long time for an omni movie that's Dark assuming ride. they don't
3: stop your ride for some guys running around
0: <laughs> the- yeah <laughs> <laughs> never knew anybody who did that um it's funny too we have a great restored film that i uh, or video that I got um and it's a pal version then martin of martin's video gave me a number of years ago that i then uh, enhanced and because it was pal it was already progressive scan rather than interlaced so it's probably the the best out there and it, in the it runs about 16 minutes or 17 minutes or so because it has load and unload but the, the comments have always been great that this is amazing we love it and it even has a ride stop <laughs> right in <laughs> right in nova site it has a uh, no, or nova city has, has a has a ride stop so uh, there are 184 vehicles uh, seating four people, uh, five. If you had some kids, uh, I think you could, you could squeeze in there, but then we wouldn't be able to get majority. Rules <laughs> there might be a uproar. Um, that's true. Yeah. S- somebody would not have a, have a kid, vote. kid. Kids don't get the vote in the future. That's, <laughs> that's right. So we had a couple different lower uh, levels in there. You know, they had wardrobe and uh, maintenance levels. We're going to get into some of those in, in future episodes, really diving in and, um, Ted, what do you have on the VIP lounge since you have the, the, the document there? Anything of, of note? I mean, I've seen pictures of it. It's a grand place. I wish I could go visit it. Uh, yeah, go so the,
5: the, This is a Horizons corporate packet. By the way, I have a few other stats about uh, the uh, – Oh, yeah. I, oh, should I do Send that first? Yeah. yeah, go ahead. Uh, so the track length, 1,562 feet. Total square footage, you want to guess? 100,000. Oh, that's right. 100, 101,325 101, square feet. Nice uh, job, JT. Way to go! <laughs> uh, it took uh, thirty-seven hundred. Hold on, I have it here. Thirty-seven hundred tons of steel to construct the pavilion. And I, like I, I read that that was more than Spaceship Earth. Wow. I, and and there's a there's we have some
0: great construction photos of it, and uh, the matrix of steel, is is just it's dumbfounding and and no wonder when they finally did take it down they you know it's either blast it or take it down the way they did um because i i my understanding and i'll send you guys the, the picture here this is it, it almost looks like the inside of space mountain going up it's just it's it's absolutely mind-boggling and they're not even done with it there right <laughs> yeah that was november i was just 82. thinking that you
4: know what actually what's kind of interesting is you know this pavilion was built right out in front of everyone because construction didn't start until you know the park was open so yeah that's pretty pretty rare it's like there's they could put a construction wall around it but there wasn't much you could hide
0: no no (laughs) we have some film of the construction too one of our films that we have um shows workers on the roof uh in the later stages and stuff which is which is really
5: neat have you posted Uh, that yet
0: Oh yeah, that one's been okay. on there for, for, no, for a it. number of years. I have so, some yeah, more obscure
5: we'll... facts and figures about the ride in the control system. Do you want those sure. now? Absolutely. Okay. The ambient tension. the ambient temperature of the pavilion must be between okay, zero that, and that is obscure. And <laughs> sixty degrees Celsius. Celsius. It's a Celsius thing. The relative humidity must be between thirty and ninety five percent. The wheel diameter was eight inches. And the AC motor temperature I mean uh Speed was 1620 RPM. I could go on, but I'll leave <laughs> Ladies
0: and gentlemen, we told you we would go deep, and we are going <laughs> deep.
5: Oh, I have more, but I'll stop there. So, the, if you go check out the um, Horizons Ride Control System spec document on DisneyDocs.net, it is uh, 50 pages of diagrams and uh, very and a lot of calculations of how the ride works. It is far beyond me for most of it. The corporate packet I have is a um, – it talks about how, in, how customers of GE could go to the, the sponsor center. And it was a place to entertain special guests and to reward employees as well with the behind-the-scenes look of Horizons and be able to get on the ride. Uh, I thought it was interesting that the sponsorship forms uh, – so you have these forms that you'd fill out and uh, as a GE or I guess as a Disney employee – to sponsor someone to get these one of these passes, and it talks about how the sponsorship forms could be either sent by RapidCom or Panafax back to Disney. I couldn't tell if those were made up in the spirit of Horizons or those were actual fax equipment of 1983, because I have never heard of them. I don't know if any of you have. Uh, so this document does not go into a lot of detail about the center itself. It just simply has some has some original uh, forms to fill out to get sponsors. So I, I can't provide you any more insight into the, the behind the scenes of what that center was and how it became to be and how long it was and how it worked.
4: Well, I, I do have two. I, I did actually get to go into that one time. Oh, wow. Of, officially. And I, to me, the most interesting thing was they had a camera up on the top of it that oh, you could remote right. control from inside it was a uh, it was a special ge camera it had a really long telephoto lens on it and you would control it remotely and you could kind of put it around the park and zoom in on people walking around and stuff and <laughs> and but again it was just like hey we have this thing it's like let's do a demonstration of it for uh for the people to see uh and then um one little tidbit that came out uh that i thought was interesting was that um it became when spaceship earth was being renovated in 93 or 94 i'm trying to remember now when it went through its i guess that was 94 for jeremy irons actu- yes um when that uh when the at and lounge was closed during the renovation process they let the ATT people use the horizons lounge uh instead uh during that interim period when, when it was shut down. So some at and folks got to go into there and, uh, and use the horizons one too, which I thought was a neat little tidbit.
0: Well, let's give a little preview then, you know, uh, we're going to have, well, we're going to have some health scans coming up next month. Uh, I think as we go through that area, uh, we got oranges we need to talk about and flavor grapes, uh, pep right. I believe we're also mm-hmm. grown. We're grown in the future. um, we got to be careful. There's a storm coming, so we're going to have to be careful about that. Um, and the, the most important part, though, is that we're going to have to do it in time to get back to the birthday party. Because don't forget, we are going to have that coming up next month. There's a birthday yeah, that party. is we that is Davy's birthday. Is Davey, very important. It is. Us, yeah. It is important. But we're also going to take a, a you know go back uh, in in time and look at as we talked about the future that never was from Jules Verne's view and a few others. Um, but how you have a lot of information just on the queue alone of, of future port. And I was reading something the other day that somebody walked in there and noticed the were probably faux doors and wanted to know why there was always a trash can sitting in front of the door, the faux doors. Right. So we'll yes, talk about and we, that. And we know
4: exactly who's responsible for that.
0: There we go. So we've got that type of information. Um, and uh, you know, just the the look of it, the mural when it came down, uh, some changes to the pavilion over the years. There weren't many, but there were there were a few. Um, and then, obviously, in future episodes, we'll get into the e- eventual demise uh, and some uh, particular, maybe some particular people who were able to get up close and personal. And how you have a stack of photos, right? That are I do well, actually slides. Slides. So they're going to Brian. That's that's all Brian's. now, Yeah. Right? Br- they're, oh, he,
3: they're, they're scanned. Done. They're done. They're done. You might get to see them at an event in Florida in October.
0: Listen to what? that. All right. Well, we'll hit a little hint there. So um, yeah, so we've got a lot of great stuff. Um, we also have a a massive amount of research photos that Jason has been putting together over the years in blueprints, and we'll we'll figure out what can what can be shared and what we can get out there so that you guys can see it. This this so much. Um, to, to go over so uh, anything else guys that you particularly want to want to talk about Um, I'm just looking through some photos here of the attraction I, I just love all the all the maquette models and everything that they did at eye level just like a true original you know Disneyland Walt Disney World attraction that they made the models they did the walkthroughs at eye level it's, it's like I don't know if they do that anymore but it, it's just so back to the original way of doing it
5: uh, I will add that the, um, the vehicle installation began July 5th, 1983, and final tests starting August 15th. And they had a test track in Donga. That's where the test track was in the ride, and the, they began testing it in 1981. So, and I believe there is a photo
0: of the test out there. We'll have to dig that up. I think I've seen yeah, that out there. There's a photo of
3: Marty Sklar, John Hench. And two other people who escape me right now
0: sitting in the test vehicle. I've got to hear this is yeah, this is the cardboard one. This is the cardboard mock-up that they were sitting right. in. Yeah, I think there's another one of um of them testing into hunger with with the actual suspended car. I'll have to find that. So so some other things I think we need to do in the future, too, is that we've tracked down some individuals who have worked on the ending films and there were massive miniatures made for that. We'll want to talk about that in the future. I yep. mean, the sets for that were incredibly detailed. Yeah, so so in,
4: in the next 30 days, as you guys have your appetites whetted, we are going to be making arrangements to actually try to talk to a lot of the folks uh, that worked on some of these components, so you're going to be able to hear from them personally if all goes well, um, which will be a really nice treat. Uh, and, and we are trying to, uh, to get as many people who actually touch this thing uh, to interview, to talk to, to get the you know the real deal instead of just you know the, the stuff that was written in a book. So, uh, bear with us as as we get that done. I, I think it's going to be really really fascinating as yeah. as we dive into this.
0: And it will take us a while, but we promise you we'll get to done. This is our mission right now, amongst some other things. So uh, we'll we'll definitely get it done, and uh, we'll. Uh, Wet your appetite with a lot of photos, and we'll 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 tease we'll, out some tweets. We'll get and some teasers. Too. We'll get it done by Century
1: Four. We promise. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: I know a lot of people are going like, continue, please, but it is, it is getting to the end of the day here. We are uh, starting to burn the midnight oil, so we are going to end it here. Uh, but we will be back next month with part two, where we. Like we said, we'll go into the attraction and uh, get into the nitty gritty detail of all the scenes, line up the music, um, and uh, it'll be a lot of fun going through that because it'll feel like we're there again. So so as we mentioned um uh how how sent me about 30 or 40 videotapes that we've converted so we're going to definitely get those lined up um we have some volunteers who are helping us write articles for different uh, films and and uh slide sets that we've got those will be coming out um you should have seen some new films coming out uh, in the past couple of weeks as well as uh, we've got some already pre-programmed so keep your eyes peeled for that a lot of great stuff and we are holding a couple things near and dear to our hearts so Uh, When the time is right, we'll release some really cool footage that we got. Um, Also, too, as always, we have all of our merchandise. And if you're in the Horizons mood, we do have a couple Horizon-themed shirts. Our uh, famous Mesa Verde University T-shirt with its Latin phrase. If you send us your child, we will return a farmer in Latin on that one. And then we also have our Pegasus Hoverlift Company T-shirt as well and logo. Just oh, and I guarantee Todd, there's gonna to be some there's gonna be some others. I am sure you're shortly
4: them. joining the fray.
0: Awesome, awesome. I want to see the harvesters bringing in the oranges <laughs> and also too I think next month for the adults, I am going to share out uh, I, I have a beverage called the Mad Orange that I have come up with, which is a, a wonderful uh, summertime drink so we will share that beverage recipe and if you could, how make one of those famous little recipe cards that you offer. oh, yeah, tweet out. absolutely that would be great. So we'll get that right. It's a wonderfully refreshing beverage for the summertime months. So, uh, and as always, a thank, a big thank you to our, all of our donors out there, including you, Ted, you're one of our t- top donors. Really appreciate you being at that gold or platinum level, whatever metallic element you'd like to be, uh, crowned as, but, uh, I hope you enjoyed sitting in with us tonight. Um,
5: it was great. Thank
0: you. You're very welcome. Thank if, you for all your efforts. If, in if, working.
3: if enough of you do that, we'll give you a ride in Walt's plane when we buy it.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> Who's flying it? <laughs> we'll figure that out. We, we, we know a pilot. We have a pilot Oh, that's pilot right. We fan. do. We do have a pilot. That's right. Yeah. He flies for a, a major cargo company. So cargo passengers, doesn't matter. He's just, you're moving things. So so we'll be back next month, episode fifty. Horizons Part 2, The Promise. This is the prologue, so that will be The Promise. And with that, Brian, before you take us out, why don't you add and tell them where they can find uh, Ted on Twitter and everywhere else. Follow Ted Linhart on Twitter at
3: TedOnTV and find his amazing cache of Disney documents on the web at DisneyDocs.net. Follow the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society on Twitter and Instagram at LBV History and on the web at lbvhistory.org. Follow Todd McCartney and RetroWDW on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at RetroWDW for all things Retro Disney World, including exclusive merchandise. Visit us on the web at RetroWDW.com. On Twitter, follow our web designer Jason Bartell of Deepwater Studios at Jason DWS. Our announcer, Andre Gardner, at Andre Gardner, and follow our hosts, Hal Bowers, on Twitter and Instagram, at GoAwayGreen, and on the web, at KingdomOfMemories.com. For JT Cougar, on Twitter, at LS1JT, on YouTube, at Rubber City Motoring, and on the web, at RubberCityMotoring.com. And you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, at Brian P. Miles. Retro Disney World is the monthly podcast of the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society. A nonprofit, nonpartisan, tax exempt 501c3 organization and is not affiliated in any way with the Walt Disney Corporation or any of its subsidiary or affiliated entities.